Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Cindy Burnett. And my name is Dr. Matthew Wurwood. This is the Fueling Creativity in Education podcast. On this show, we'll be talking about creativity topics and how they apply to the field of education. We'll be speaking with scholars, educators, and resident experts about their work, challenges they face, and digging deeper into new and varying perspectives of creativity. All with the goal to help fuel the more rich and informed discussion that provides teachers and parents with knowledge they can use at home or in the classroom. So let's begin. Hello, and welcome back to the Fueling Creativity and Education podcast. Today, we're going to have a very special debrief about a very special episode with Dr. Howard Gardner. So Matt, what did you think about our interview with Dr. Gardner? Well, I think it was obviously a privilege for you and I to have an opportunity to sit down with Dr. Howard Gardner, both during the interview and also during the preliminary discussion that we had with him. We also had time to dig into some of his work and we read his uh, memoir, Synthesizing Mind, which I think really showcased his journey as a scholar. And one of the things that I think really stood out to me was how he was kind of trying to find his home domain per se. He has, he seems to have lots of interests and it was really interesting to see how he navigated all of those different interests as he kind of pursued a career in academia, which I think is sometimes, you know, challenges us to kind of think and act within one specific domain. And so perhaps that speaks to some of the really wonderful connections that he's made within his work during his lifetime. I agree, Matt. I love the synthesizing mind. It was such an intellectual journey of his discovery and how he saw things. And I loved, you know, his journey through the multiple intelligences and how he landed there. I didn't know that story, as well as what happened after he came out with the multiple intelligence and how he was under fire for so much of his work and what that was like. I think it really brought to life the challenges that we face as academics, as researchers, as creative human beings to come up with new ideas and to share those ideas and to to be able to take some of the criticism or a lot of criticism over the work that we, we do and create. I'd like to talk a little bit about his view of creativity. Obviously, he comes from a perspective where he's focused on eminent creators when he talked about his book, um, Creating Minds, and he looked at the lives of all of those eminent creators. And I think that view of creativity was very popular uh, in the 1990s and 1980s. But I think now we're more focused on everyday creativity in the field of creativity research and focused on those learning episodes and focused on how every person can be creative. And it was interesting to me to hear Dr. Gardner talk about creative individuals being these eminent creators. And he did talk about, you know, mini C and little C creativity as Ron Baghetto and James Coffin have talked about in their research. But most of his focus was on eminent creativity. So do you think, this is my question to you, Matt, do you think the field has changed or shifted more into looking at perspectives of everyday creators? Or do you think we still have a strong dominance in eminent creators? Well, I think, first of all, I think I'm right in thinking that Howard Gardner worked closely with with other notable scholars like Chipmunt C. High, who was really focused on the attributes of an individual as they go about making changes, significant changes within a domain. And of course, you get into that need to master a particular domain before you're in a position to make the type of changes that can propel that 
that domain forward. Within our interview with Dr. Howard Gardner, he also spoke about the 10,000-hour rule and, and the importance of developing uh, expertise. But I think, you know, and I am a little bit biased because I use the 4C model so much in my own work, particularly when I'm working with teachers. It's the progressive aspect of that model, creativity starting from mini C, little C, pro C, big C. When we, when we look at eminent creativity or, we look, or, or perhaps we're referring to it, I often refer to it as this big C creativity, to a certain extent it's out of our control, right? Because one of the definitions of big C is, is the impact is, is likely to endure beyond your lifetime. The other part of it is it's so much about how other people interpret and value your work. And sometimes that value occurs after you've left uh, this world. So I think there's a lot of elements of eminent creativity that is out of our hands. But if you look at the 4C model, it reminds us that at a very young age, we can engage in acts of creativity. We can produce new and useful outcomes. And so mini C and little C creativity, I think, are, is more appropriate to a classroom environment. And as you become, as you begin to master your domain more, have more experience in your domain, you're more likely to then transition to pro C creativity. So the developmental aspect of the 4C model has perhaps helped us focus in on the different areas within our society and identify the areas where we perhaps can provide greater support for creativity versus the areas that perhaps is a lot more harder to teach for creativity. So bringing it back to the question that you asked me, I think the field, as you would expect from any field, has expanded its knowledge and has different avenues. And I think mini C and little c creativity are particularly relevant for a classroom environment and education. And that's obviously our focus. But I would also say that for a lot of people, when it comes to solving really big problems in society, such as the problems caused by you know, climate change and, and, you know, the challenges that we experience as nations try and work together in this global community. We need, you know, that big C creativity. We need more of that big C creativity. That's the type of creativity that really propels us forward. So I think that we have to continue to investigate big C creativity. I think we need to continue to promote big C creativity. Um, the, the, what's interesting, though, is is that relationship you you develop between big C creativity and mini C creativity when you're actually teaching creativity in a classroom environment? What, what do you think about it from that perspective? Well, I think it is about taking small steps. And when I work with educators, I'm always about the small steps make big changes. And we want to start small with our students and show them ways in which they can be curious and more open-minded and looking at things from different perspectives. And I think building that capacity and that mindset in our students is what's really beneficial in what's happening in education. So while showing them pictures of Martha Graham and Steve Jobs and Albert Einstein can be inspiring and hearing their quotes can be inspiring, what we really need to do is show them how to bring these capacities and this mindset into the learning that they do. And that's where mini C lives, right? So we continue to do that. And then they find their ground in the domain that they're in now. So what's interesting about Howard is he brought in a lot of domain specificity. And it's interesting because I really think in the learning level, I think if we look in our classrooms, it can be about 
the domain, but it can also be transdisciplinary, meaning it can cross over to different domains. So for teaching students how to be curious in science, then I think that translates over into the arts and math. It could get them more curious in all different domains. So I think it depends on where you're working with students and what particular C. Yeah, what's interesting about that, I mean, we're we're talking about the domain general and domain specific debate and whether or not a particular set of creative thinking skills can be applied to produce creative outcomes in in multiple domains. And are they the same skills? Can, Can creativity be generalized? And I think the connection I'm making to that is what we started off at the very beginning of the show talking about, which is the concept of the synthesizing mind. Because To me, I felt that, you know, going back to what I said earlier, it wasn't necessarily clear the type of creative contributions Dr. Howard Gardner would go on to make as he entered his professional career. And at a very young age, I think to your point, it was fortunate for him to have an environment where he was able to be curious and apply that curiosity to lots of different fields, um, to ask questions about lots of different fields, and to begin to develop and synthesize information from lots of different fields. And I think what I would say is that I think he's probably utilized that environment to go and make the connections he's made across domains in his field. So, and I don't know if we can answer this, is whether or not this discussion might be applicable to someone with a synthesizing mind, and then it might be applicable in a different way to someone with a disciplined mind. I think that's a really interesting perspective, Matt. And I think for me, I have been reflecting a lot on the difference between a synthesizing mind and a creating mind. And he did talk about the difference between the two. But it brings me back to a conversation we had with Jonathan Plucker in our view with him when he talked about old stuff plus old stuff equals new stuff. And I think that is actually the synthesizing mind is taking depths of knowledge from different areas and being able to combine it and synthesize it and summarize it. And I think what Gardner was talking about was really taking it to the next level in the creating mind and actually making something with it and doing something with it. Yeah. And I'm still pondering this one because I think that I I, I can't help but think that the synthesizing mind is highly creative. And I think that the most important point of these minds that we're talking about come from the book Five Minds of the Future. And I think what it's really emphasizing is the fact that as we move forward in society, and I think I can't remember when this book was actually published, I think 2006, maybe 2007, Five Minds of the Future. But I think it's really applicable to where we are today is that we need these different minds in order to go and produce creative outcomes and perhaps reach eminent creativity as we try and address some of the challenges that we have. And I think that I I, I can't remember if I I alluded to the, the value of the synthesizing mind at one point in our conversation, and perhaps I might connect with the synthesizing mind, and that makes me a little bit biased. But one of the things that Dr. Howard Gardner emphasized is that you know, a synthesizing mind isn't for everyone. And all of the minds are important. Now, whether or not I feel that the creative mind is the creativity mind, um, I'm not sure I, I think that per se. But I think that the creative mind as it's represented within that book is the act of doing something, um, you know, mm. is needed as we make these un- unique connections that might come from a synthesizing mind, or we begin to go and move a discipline forward, because we've, we've mastered that domain that might come from the discipline mind. Um, the creative mind is very important within that process of just moving fields forward, moving society forward. But again, that goes back to our 4C conversation. So is that professional creativity or is that mini C creativity? Because I would argue that 
that's, and I, I'm sure you would agree with me on this, that it, that's more on the pro C eminent creativity part of the scale than the mini C and little C, which is happening in the classroom. Yeah, but I think that really it comes back to what you said earlier when you was touching on the domain specific and domain general discussion. It, it's about developing, you know, mindsets and, and ways of thinking that I think are applicable to any potential future where, where you may land. So in a classroom environment, we're not necessarily um, teaching in a way that is, you know, specific to one particular mind, ideally. And you could argue maybe that we typically do teach more toward the discipline mind. So in a science class, you're really focused on just mastering uh, chemistry per se. Um, but I think that really it's about bringing all these minds together and it might be bringing all these minds together collectively in a group or it might be trying to make sure that we can tap into these different minds that we may all possess maybe some more than you know we might have one mind that might be a little bit more dominant than others but i i, I just feel that there is probably a relationship between all of these minds as we're working toward producing creativity in the future and therefore developing that relationship in a classroom environment whether it's mini c little c pro c it's irrelevant. I think it, it's all applicable. And I think really, you maybe we could argue that mini C, little C and pro C, actually, does it come down to the outcome we produce as opposed to the process itself? I mean, is the process the same whether you're, you're a six-year-old in a kindergarten classroom or a 15-year-old in a high school classroom or a 25-year-old in a, in a, you know, a, a tech startup? The, the process, the type of thinking that we're trying to nurture is applicable wherever. But when we're getting into conversations about mini C, little c and pro c, we might be focused primarily on the outcomes that we produce. And so we actually might not be having a conversation. It's not an apples to apples conversation. It might be an apples to oranges conversation per se. So Matt, I'd love to hear one of your key insights that you had from the episode. I think it was his conversation around the need to have a tough personality, um, particularly for some uh, creatives. Now, when we're talking about tough personality, it, it kind of relates in some ways to the conversation that we just had. When, As you're beginning to master a domain, so you're developing knowledge of a particular field – you have, if you want to go and produce pro C creativity, you you need to go and challenge that field, challenge the norms in that field, produce an outcome that might be disruptive to that field. And as you engage in that process, as you begin to push back on some existing thinking or current ways of doing something and offer alternatives, then you might get a lot of critique and pushback. And that's why it's important to have a tough personality. And bringing this back into a classroom environment, which I thought Howard Gardner was so good at doing, is making sure we have all these big conversations and bring it into a classroom environment, is that he was talking about how young children who perhaps are demonstrating the ability to master a domain quicker than, than other children their age, their peers, as they begin to do things differently in that learning environment, we need to make sure that we protect them as well. I think it's interesting that you're talking about protecting because wasn't protector one of his mentor protector was that one of them yes it was and i that was one of my other takeaways and i don't mind kind of like transitioning into that as well is that samantha olshan who's a colleague of mine at the university of connecticut we interviewed samantha i want to say about three four months ago and one of her three tips was to be a mentor or find a mentor and it was interesting mm -hmm. that that dr gardner spoke a lot about mentorship and within the literature there is there is work around the value of having a mentor as you're going about engaging in creative acts because that mentor can provide you with feedback and information about what you're doing what you're creating the process 
process to which you're engaging with in order to produce the outcome. And, you know, that feedback is really important. And I think that is, that's what a really big, important part of being a mentor. Now, coming back to what you said, um, Professor Gardner also referenced, you also sometimes need a protector. He was referencing the need for a protector at um, a young age. So at going back to what I'd said around the tough personality is that those young people who are beginning to challenge their field at an early, early age would benefit from having a protector who can support them and, you know, encourage them to go and take risks, to ask new questions, um, to explore something in a new way and not necessarily be encouraged to kind of like follow the same status quo that everyone has done that came before them. And so that's the protector piece. But then he also spoke about a um, fragmentor and then a tormentor as well. So I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about those two things. I actually want to go back to the protector piece because, you know, there's been recent research studies about teachers' perceptions of creative children, and they're not always good because Creative kids can, you know, highly creative kids in the classroom can often be disruptive and they challenge the status quo. And that makes a lot of teachers uncomfortable, you know, especially those teachers out there who want to move forward in the learning and don't really want to stop, don't want to be challenged, want to be seen as the the knowledgeable expert um, on the stage. I'm not saying this is a good teacher. I'm saying, but there are, there are teachers out there that don't gel well, that's the only way I can say it, that don't gel well with creative, highly creative kids. And when they don't meet the needs of what they want to do, and I'll give you an example. My son, you know, he's got an assignment for math. He's very, very creative. And he he said, I know how to do all this. I don't need to do IXL, which is a standard math. I want to do something different. I want, you know, now his teacher I know would be open to that that he wants to do something different to showcase his math ability. But a lot of teachers would get frustrated with that because they would see it as, well, they're not following what I'm telling them to do, even if it's not in the best interest of the student, which is unfortunate, right? So, you know, for those teachers listening, how often do students come to you with an alternative for how they want to showcase their assessment or their knowledge or their learning? And how do you respond to that? So in terms of a protector, you know, not only do you have to think about how do you nurture those creative abilities and those that questioning and that need to do something different, but how do you support it, encourage it, and allow for students and tell students that it's okay for you to challenge the status quo because a lot of teachers just aren't comfortable with that. Well, listen, let me kind of like um, play devil's advocate on this a little bit. So I think in in this particular situation, you're bringing up your son who, by the sounds of it, has demonstrated advanced thinking within a particular field, in in this case, math. And I would say that they're obviously advanced and and, um, talented. And dare I say, they've probably mastered much of the material, if not all of the material that they are expected to master um, at their age. And so I think in this situation, we would be looking for teachers to act in exactly the same way your son's teacher is acting in, to continue to nurture that curiosity, to um, make sure that they are protecting them in case anyone, you know, challenges them and says, no, 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 they, they shouldn't be doing that. They should be doing this. But at the same time, is there scenarios where a student may come and, and, and want to kind of provide an alternative way of doing something or, you know, might want to come and, and say, look, I want to do it this way, but 
the teacher's looking and saying, well, in order for you to be successful, based on my experience, my wisdom, my knowledge of the field, you haven't mastered enough subject knowledge in order for you to do what you're trying to do. I mean, you know, I think about my six-year-old, for example. He wants to go and uh, replicate what his nine-year-old and 12-year-old brothers are doing. But without certain skills, he's going to struggle to do that. So I have to sometimes get him to focus on those skills before he's able to go and engage in that type of of creative activity. Um, so I'm just wondering if if there are situations like your son's case where the answer is yes, absolutely. We must be protecting them. We must be doing A, B, and C to nurture their creative potential. But then there might be scenarios where teachers should actually be pushing back because there's a need to master the domain before you can go and work on that blank canvas. And I'm playing devil's advocate. I, I'm not saying that, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I feel like I could go both ways on this. You know, Matt, I think you bring up a really good point. And I think what you're talking about is actually something you talk a lot about, which is thinking inside the box and thinking inside the constraints. So making sure that we show students that they need to make sure they fit within a certain paradigm of the content that we're teaching them and they meet the learning goals. Because it doesn't matter what my son does with the math, if he's not meeting the learning goals of the summer assignment, then he's not achieving what he needs to set out to do for his assignment. So I think what I'm advocating for is giving students options and choice if they decide that there's a different or alternative way of showcasing their knowledge instead of just the way that you're presenting. Yeah. And I, and I think we, we might have moved into so, something slightly different, um, you know, and I'm, I'm going to have to probably take this offline and think more about it because I think it's a really interesting conversation. I think we, we might be moving into what, what Howard Gardner, we had this conversation with Howard Gardner where there are, I think I, I in, introduced a question about you have to kind of work within the domain and the current knowledge and almost, you know, make incremental steps, you know, small changes that can be accepted for the field. Because if you move too drastically or too fast, you might get pushback. And you know, there's scenarios where perhaps creatives, eminent creatives might go and engage in that type of process. So they're not going in and kind of like mm -hmm. saying, hey, everyone's wrong. Everyone must change. This is how I think um, this field should be operating. And sure enough, you know, they that field begins to adjust and respond immediately and change. Um, quite often, the field might resist that. So those incremental ch uh, changes can be successful at times, but that individual through those incremental changes can go on to eminent creativity. But there might be other scenarios where you know someone can go in and be highly disruptive and that's where the tough personality comes in because the field pushes back but through perseverance um, and perhaps through the support of a protector they're able to kind of like push their changes through and those changes also go on to produce eminent creativity so that there might be kind of like you know two different routes to which um, individuals engage in in changing a field and, and moving toward eminent creativity but but coming back to the point that I was trying to make is that the situation seems very specific on your son being at a certain level of math. I think that's why you brought the example mm -hmm. forward is that he has a level of mastery within math. And therefore, what you're saying is in those circumstances, we need to make sure that your son has an opportunity to think creatively and be curious and engage in alternative ways to go about math problems. But what I was wondering is in the event that there is a student who doesn't have as much uh, skills in math as your son has, has expressed, um, hasn't mastered enough of the 
operational concepts associated with math? Would they be successful in doing some of the things that your son is asking to do? Or should the teacher say, hold on, I love your creative thinking here. I want to promote your curiosity. Why don't we spend a couple of weeks making sure that you've mastered this operation before we move on to that? And so in essence, the teacher is pushing back a little bit and trying to get the, 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 the student to stick with the curriculum, to, to stick with the learning objectives. And only when they've mastered that, engage in the type of creativity that I think you're advocating for your son. Man, I think you bring up some really interesting points, and I'm also going to go away thinking about that. And I just want to bring up the fact, something that you just said about Howard Gardner, you know, when we look at disruption in a field, I think Gardner was a huge disruptor because he brought in multiple intelligence and he was changing our construct of how we viewed intelligence. And that's why he was so under fire. I mean, in his book, he talked about there was a a whole book dedicated to Gardner and multiple intelligence under fire. And I think that's because he was such a disruptor in the field of intelligence And so it's just interesting that you bring that up because I do think that we need to make incremental changes. And I think the people that are making huge changes, what we would consider, quote, innovative, and I don't really like that word. Again, we go back to those constructs of words. But when you think of someone who's truly innovative, that we might not actually see the success that they have in in their thinking until beyond their lifetime, as he mentioned, because we're just not ready for it. Yeah, I really like what you've brought up and you've you've made me think about something. I felt within Synthesizing Mind and talking to Howard Gardner kind of reaffirmed this view that he wasn't necessarily his his creative work wasn't necessarily for colleagues within his field. He went and shared his ideas with the masses and and really interesting questions and ideas that other people resonated with. And I have no doubt that through his work it's, it's led to other creative acts from other people who might not necessarily even be in higher education. And so, you know, trying to make sure that this discipline or that discipline always has to give the thumbs up for our work in some ways might limit the impact that we can have in society outside that domain. And I think that's one of the reasons why Dr. Howard Gardner is so prevalent is because he's gone on and touched the lives of so many people outside of academia. Well, Matt, I think we could talk about Dr. Gardner's interview all day long, but we do need to wrap this up. So for those of you listening, if you have any insights, questions, or thoughts on the Dr. Howard Gardner episode, special episode, we would love to hear from you at questions at fuelingcreativitypodcast.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, please write us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. Now, as we kind of transition into the summer months, myself and Cindy will be sharing an announcement during next week's episode and talking about what we're, what our plans are for the summer and the Fueling Creativity in Education podcast because we have a little bit of a different experience for you coming up. My name is Dr. Matthew Werbert. And my name is Dr. Cindy Burnett. This episode was produced by Creativity and Education in partnership with WarwoodClassroom.com. <laughs>